Hey, it's me, WWE Hall of Famer from the Legion of Doom, Road Warrior Animal, Joe Laurinaitis. And today on Oh, What a Rush podcast, the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Now, Ted, we're going to talk about all sorts of topics. We're going to talk about his first match when he left WWF at the time was against Hulk Hogan. And we're going to talk about him going there, wrestling in Mid-South, his personal life, and we are going to help him promote his new movie coming out, The Price of Fame. So strap it on, get ready for a wild ride with the Million Dollar Man, and remember, everybody's got a price. Tab Hawk! He's one half of the Road Warriors and the Legion of Doom, the most successful tag team in the world of professional wrestling. He's held the AWA, NWA, WCW, and WWF titles. He snacked on danger and dined on death. He's Road Warrior Animal, Joe Laurinaitis, and this is the What A Rush Podcast. Now, here's your host, Joe Roderick. And we're back for another episode of the What A Rush podcast here on the STL Podcast Network. I am your host, Joe Roderick, joined alongside by the star of the show, the WWE Hall of Famer. He is Joe Laurinaitis, Road Warrior Animal. Joe, what's going on? Joe, how you doing today? I am, you know what, I'm doing good. Christmas is a uh, just a few days away. I know, uh, well, looking at uh, what your wife's done in your house, you, you guys are ready to go. Yeah, man, we're still, uh, you know, tidying up last-minute deals and uh, trying to get things done here for the holidays. You know, you got grandkids you got to buy for and family members, so it's it's hectic. I'm sure everybody out there in the U.S. can can relate to this. Yeah, last week it'll be a shorter episode. This week, last week we went three plus hours looking at the 20-year anniversary of In Your House, Degeneration X. That's and we got phenomenal feedback on yeah, that, too, babe. You know, that was such a great event and, and good good place and time at wrestling, you know, for wrestling, that uh, people love hearing about it, and uh, we're getting a lot of positive feedback on it on my emails and stuff like that. You know what? A lot. Of, it was a lot of quick-hitting stories, too. I liked that, that it was a lot of quick-hitting stories, and there were so many big names on that, I, I, I will tell, I will tease this, that we don't plan on doing that often, but we we will have a special one, I think, in the month of January. We will have another watch-along episode of the uh, of the podcast in the, uh, in the month of January. Love doing it. Maybe ahead of time we can announce it to the fans. That way they can write in questions that they want to have answered. Oh, yeah. yeah. For, the, for the pre-show type thing. You yeah. Know? Of course, uh, today on the show, we're going to be chatting with the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. A guy, uh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome guy, man. Awesome guy. Spent a lot of time with Teddy. Uh, you know, I first met Teddy down in Georgia Championship Wrestling, you know, and it's fun to talk to Ted about the long line, the long lineage he comes from with his, I believe, his father for sure, and I think his grandpa maybe even used to wrestle. So, you know, Teddy comes from a great wrestling family. Then his two sons actually dabbled in the wrestling mm-hmm. before they got injured. And, and, and the path he's taken across the years towards leading him to now and being a being a pastor. He and his son, Teddy, are both pastors. I mean, how great is that, that you go in a business that you were pro wrestlers together, and now you could do stuff like that that help 
help people and help young people and be, be in, you know, with the Christian faith like that, man. It's, yeah. it's awesome. And it coincides the price of fame. His movie uh, that he and Teddy worked on together uh, comes out. It will be available on Amazon starting December 22nd. Yeah. So we're uh, recording this on December 20th. It'll be available on December 22nd for I, people on Amazon. I, I look forward to seeing that, man. I'm anxious to see what, uh, what Teddy and his, and his son have to say about everything in life and his price of fame and uh, – it's going to be very interesting, man. Fans should all go and see that movie. We, uh, well, I, I got to say, you know, we've had a very busy week of downloads and people really starting to uh, to jump on board and find the show on uh, on their podcasting apps uh, and also online. We even got our first review, Joe. Dang. Uh, the uh, pwpodcast.com, um, a uh, sub website of the pro wrestling. Uh, the, the, the PW Torch website run by Wade Keller. So we got our first review, Joe. Uh-oh, um, here it comes. You know, you're, you're the star of the show. You're the WWE Hall of Famer. So, of course, they're, they're going to treat you kindly <laughs> on this because they're just going to sit back and they just want you to tell stories from your yeah, 30 years. Yeah. So it's me. I'm the one that gets uh, that's going to get scrutinized because I'm just some uh, I'm just some schmuck radio guy from St. <laughs> Louis that's now uh, that's now talking wrestling for a living. You see, when I talk, whenever I mentioned wrestling on the air during the eight years of doing radio in St. Louis, yeah. I you know people would oh you know talks real sports, talk this, talk that. Now I get to just talk wrestling for a living, and it's great. Well, you know, hey, for a long the longest time here in the St. Louis area, man, it was hey, nothing but the St. Louis Cardinals. And, yep. and the Rams were there in town now that the Rams left, and it is all Cardinals. And so wrestling was kind of like the uh, redheaded stepchild of, of St. Louis, you know? Yeah, our, the episode uh, the episode they, they rated with Paul Ellering, they rated it a Ricky Steamboat. I don't know what that means, but all I, all I know is that if they're comparing something that we're doing to the work of Ricky Steamboat, I'm going to say that's probably a damn hey, good that, thing. That's got to be top-notch, man. Right. Ricky Steamboat is one of the top guys ever <laughs> in pro wrestling. So right. thank you for the top rating then, I right. guess, Wade Keller. And they're not giving it a gobbledygooker. So yeah, as, long as, yeah. as long as that isn't you know, what they, <laughs> what they rate it, I think we're going to be doing okay. So we, we thank them for, uh, for reviewing it, for putting us on the map with a lot of the other great podcasts that are out there in the world of pro wrestling, and hopefully we uh, we figure out a way to stand uh, stand um, I guess aside from all of those and do our own thing and make this uh, just as successful. So we well, Joe, you that. know, like the like what you did it in, in in pro sports with uh, with the Cardinals and all that, and what I've done in wrestling, um, I'm looking to make this the top podcast in wrestling. I, I've never settled for second best in my life growing up. I never settled in second best in any sport. I certainly didn't settle in second best in wrestling, so I don't want to settle in second best here. So I'm going to do all everything in my power, and I know you will too, to get the fans everything they want to hear and listen to, and hopefully we will fulfill everything they request. So. That sounds good to me. Uh, we also want to thank some of the people that have been plugging us quite a bit. The uh, Road Warrior Legion of Do Facebook page that is uh, that's out there. We of course have our own Facebook page. You go to the What a Rush podcast with Road Warrior Animal, comma Joe Laurinaitis. That is the official Facebook page of this podcast. And also on Instagram, the Road Warrior fan page on Instagram is doing yeah, a lot to uh, plug cool. us as well. That's awesome. So we appreciate all of the uh, all of the early 
promotion that we are getting from those guys. And, of course, I imagine that we're going to be getting a lot of promotion over the next, uh, well, this past week and the week to come because you have been a very, very busy guy in the world of podcasts. Your episode with Colt Cabana, The Art of Wrestling, just released last week. Uh, Did it really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so Colt uh, – Colt released the episode that you guys recorded a few weeks ago. Um, he he uh, put that out there. Yeah, Colt's a good guy. You know, he's one of the owners of uh, Pro Wrestling Tees, and uh, you know, we do a lot of I do a lot of business with him, and you know, I'm actually in negotiations here with him on doing our podcast T-shirt. Ooh, nice. Yeah, so to get that running and rolling. Good. You know, we got the artwork already done. And, then, mm-hmm. and you know, I do a lot of podcasts. You know, I just did Sean Mooney's podcast. I was podcast. just about to get yeah, to that. Man. I had that yeah. next in my notes right here. You were yeah. just on with Sean Mooney on the primetime with, with Sean Mooney. It was great to rehash, man. Yep. Sean and I go back. I had him say for me one time, wow, that's a picture-perfect power slam by Road Warrior Animal. Because uh, Sean said it so eloquently, and the way he said it, and you know, here I am pounding the guy into the ring. And Sean said it so perfectly. It was good to rehash old days and see and things with him, you know, because you know he's been in the Arizona area doing mm-hmm. sports in Arizona for a long time. And uh, for him to get into the podcast realm with wrestling, it's a perfect fit for Sean. Would you, know? you guys go over two hours on that? It we should, bro, it, we yeah. almost went as long as we did on this pay-per-view. Jeez. We went almost three hours and he literally said, Joe, I have to let you go, man. I've kept you long enough. <laughs> you know, And I didn't even realize that we were talking and laughing about so many different things. Um, it was actually a really good podcast, I thought. That is uh, that's awesome. Of course, he had he had Brian Nobbs on the week before he had uh, before he interviewed you. And I'm sitting there last week. I'm watching the winter meetings down in Orlando for Major League Baseball trying to figure out what the Cardinals are going to do, uh, you know, who they're going to go and make a trade for. Are they going to sign any free agents? And all you see in the background is Brian Nobbs constantly just sitting there on a couch in the background, dressed up like one of the nasty boys, in character, the entire thing. Yeah, you know, he's uh, he's got some kind of meeting he had lined up with all the major league teams about bringing wrestlers in. During- it was nice that he dressed up for it. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, in Nasty Boy gear, that's dressing up. Looks like he just came out of a garbage can, right? No, but or stuff was rolled up in his wrestling bag, and he just took it out and went here, you and unfolded it. But yeah, man, listen, Nobbs has got a great thing going on, and you know, every time that I've ever done an autograph deal at a baseball stadium, like we just did one at the Cardinals game, the crowd was crazy. I mean, we get about. 2,000 people at least get in line for us over a two-hour period. Jim Duncan and I just did yep. one there. And now Brian Nobbs got all these ones lined up in Tampa Bay, and all. And that's why he was beating with all the teams. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, before we get into a more serious um, b- more serious topic here, you were mentioning uh, Sean Mooney calling the power slam. I just brought up on my computer. Somebody tweeted out the other day, and Shivani, uh, Tony Shivani retweeted it. I got to show you this here. And I'm going to record you watching this. And seeing this for the first time. What is it? It is Road Warrior Animal as an enhancement talent back in 1982 in Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. I'm recording you watching this right now. We're going to put it up online. Just look at you back in 1982 and your thoughts on it. First of all, do you even know who you're in the ring with? No. And your thoughts on, on watching this match and some of the moves that you're going to see here. You know, I'm, I'm watching. Is that Pistol Pez Watley? It is. I think it's Pez Watley. That might be Pez Watley. Yeah, man. You know, I was, I was in North Carolina there. 
But I'll tell you what, though, I was a pretty svelte-looking guy. I mean, look at that. <laughs> I don't know about the buzz haircut so much, but look at that. You know, I could I could run around. Well, one of the shows here is I'm taking a good butt kick, and I'm taking, you know, flying head scissors and drop kicks and everything else. It doesn't show my aggressive parts in a match, so that's kind of disappointing. Well, it says you were enhancement talent, so I don't think you're you're really allowed to be aggressive. Hey, you? let you, me tell you something, you're, Jack. You're hey, you're enhanced. The enhancement talent that was in the ring with you and Hawk never got to be aggressive. Jack, yeah, well, that's a different story. But Jack and Briscoe was a world champ back then, and he let me slam him on TV. So that's my claim to fame as an enhancement talent. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna post that on there. Uh, Road Warrior Animal watching himself 35 years ago. Oh, bro, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah, brutal. <laughs> Uh, so I said I wanted to get to a more serious note. Uh, we, we thanked everybody we wanted to thank. We talked about last week. But unfortunately, over the weekend, we, uh, we got news that a, uh, a guy that you have known for decades passed away far too, uh, far too young, and that was the passing of, uh, of Tom Zink, a guy that you not only trained with but were in the business with many, many times in many, many territories passes away at the age of uh, 59. Yeah, man. You know, Tom Zink, uh, you know, was a Minnesota guy from Robbins where, you know, Barry King, Nikita Kolov, Rabbit Berserker, they all went to school together. And, uh, you know, Zink, Zink was another Ed Sharkey guy, got trained by Eddie Sharkey. You know, after we did our camp, he did the following camp. And, you know, Tom Zink, you know, listen, in, in high school, he wasn't the all-American athletic guy like we all tried to be. You know, Tom was – he liked the bodybuild. He was a bodybuilder, and uh, I think he won Mr. Twin Cities and Mr. Minnesota. And he had that natural physique that everybody saw in wrestling. Tom was a pretty well-built guy. You know, he, he had a good run when he tagged with Mike, with Brian Pillman. He tagged with Rick Martell. And, uh, you know, he had some good runs in the WWF and, and it did a little bit of stuff in WCW, I believe, too. You know, it's, it's a shame to see anybody die so young. Uh, it, it's especially hits home when you know a guy mm-hmm. real personal like this, a, a guy you knew before wrestling that you see that's got into the same business that passes away, man. I, you know, my, my prayers go out to his family, man. I hope, you know, the, the pain's not as bad for you, but any time you lose a loved one, I know, I mean, I just lost my dad this year, so I know what these guys are talking about. So, you know, it, it's a shame, man. So to the Zinc family, man, my prayers are with you, and I know all the wrestling fans out there have been sending their well wishes and, and praying for them as well, you know, it's it's uh, it, it, listen, it's a fact of life. It is what it is. When did you? Uh, I guess when did you first meet him? I would imagine it was with all of these other uh, all these other guys. No, actually, I met Zinc. I think I actually was a guest judge when he went in, Mister Twin Cities really? and Mister Minnesota, Minnesota, because I was involved in the bodybuilding end of it. Because I you know, I went in bodybuilding contest myself, and I was in powerlifting meets. So, and that was pre wrestling. So mm. I saw Zinc pre wrestling, and then we got in the wrestling camp, and we got. You know, we were the right place, right time. Timing's the key. And Hawk and I took advantage of that opportunity. And then Zink saw that and he, you know, got a hold of He asked me who we trained with. I said, Ed Sharkey, trained Ventura. So he trained us, you know. And, and you know, Hawk and I, Barry Darso and Scott Norton. I said, go with, uh, go with Ed. So I did another camp about a year or two after Hawk and I got in. And then that's when Zink got in, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I passed away uh, much too young, and you, all those well, names. Yeah, 50, all, Fifty-nine years old, bro. Yeah. That, that's at today's age. That's a young age. You and, know, and it's, those names that you mentioned too, from uh, from that Robbinsdale High School, uh, Kurt Henning, Rick Rude, those guys. That uh, everybody there too. will be a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. That that I had mentioned. Now, I don't know if Tom's going to make that, 
But everybody that I mentioned there will be a, a Hall of Famer. You know, Tom Tom Zink was – he and Rick Martell were hot with that Can-Am connection, man. And that was a good tag team. It was a good look to him. You had two handsome guys that could move and, and wrestle real well, you know. And, and I mean, you know, I know, I mean, you know, listen, I think Tom, like everybody else, fought with uh, a little bit of issues in his life. We all have issues, right? I mean, you know, and he was – he battled those for a while, but uh, I know he was very close to his family, that's for sure. And uh, and if you were his friend, you were you were his best friend. You know, that's just the way Zink was, man. So we'll just have to leave it at that, man. He was uh, he's going to be missed, and um, you know he'll find his rightful place in in the wrestling fame too as well. We will uh, we'll jump on the phone here in just a bit with the million dollar man Ted DiBiase. Want to make mention. That if you are listening to this show before Christmas and you are in the uh, anywhere near the Chicagoland or Midwest area, you have a chance to go see Road Warrior Animal uh, coming up on December 26th. Joe, you will be in Belvedere, Illinois, up near Chicago, a west suburb of Chicago. You will be up there. Uh, lots of guys will also be up there with you. Uh, Charles Wright, otherwise known as the Godfather, will be there. The Boogeyman will be there. Hornswoggle, Sabu, Sandman, a, uh, a long, long list of, uh, of guys that will be up there in Belvedere, Illinois, on December 26th. And then... Coming up on December 27th, you'll be right up the road, about an hour and a half north up in Madison, Wisconsin, on December 27th. So uh, two back-to-back days for uh, for you coming up next week, right after uh, right after Christmas. Yeah, man. You know, everybody hates to travel on Christmas holidays, but you know what? <clears throat> I wouldn't want to go anywhere else in the great state of Illinois or uh, you know, in in the people of Wisconsin. You know, mm-hmm. even though it's Wisconsin, I love cheeseheads. You know what I mean? And um, Big fan of the Green Bay Packers as well. And you, you listen, man, I, I'm, I'm doing a podcast actually tonight on behalf of Powerhouse Pro Wrestling nice. to help promote the event in Belvedere and the event in uh, Madison. So uh, a lot of great guys, uh, you know, Peter Cisco that's running Powerhouse Pro Wrestling is a good guy. He's, uh, he's done me very well. And so uh, you know, I look forward to going and seeing the great fans in those two states. That's uh, coming up again December 26th. You'll be at the Apollo Theater in Belvedere, Illinois. As I mentioned, uh, Sandman, Hornswoggle, uh, The Godfather, Sabu, Adam Rose will be up there. And then, yeah, the, uh, the exact same crew will be up in Madison, Wisconsin at Turner Hall in Madison, Wisconsin. Coming up the following week, we already know I will be going up there. Uh, I'll be driving up there separately from you to go up there and do a little family Christmas uh, up there, up in the Chicagoland area, but I will be meeting you in Madison, Wisconsin on the 27th, and we know that we'll already be uh, chatting with the Godfather next week, and uh, we'll see who else we can line up as well for that. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to talking to the Godfather, hashtag Papa Shango, and, uh, you know, he's always good to talk to, you know, Charles Wright's his name. It's always great talking to Charles, and uh, he and I used to be traveling buddies on the road and everything, so uh, it's going to be really good to... Uh, Talk to him again. Looking forward to uh, going up there and meeting those guys as well because, uh, yeah, uh, after that's done, we'll be into January and plenty of big things to, uh, to announce coming up in January for this podcast. And joining us now here on the What A Rush podcast, he is the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, and he joins us now. Ted, how are you, man? I'm doing pretty good, guys. How are you? You know, I, <clears throat> I got to tell the fans out there, Teddy, before we get rock and roll in here, I said, Joe, 
if you could imagine, right, Hawk and I knowing nothing now, and now you're in the heyday of wrestling in Georgia Championship Wrestling where, to me as a young kid, when I was looking at this, not a young kid, but I was about 19 years old, right? Well, I was young, yeah. But I'm looking at this and I'm seeing, I'm seeing guys on TV that I never dreamt that I would run into, and I walk into the Georgia Championship locker room there, and who do I see? I see not only Roddy Piper, Dusty Rhodes, Tommy Rich, Sergeant Slaughter, Buzz Sawyer, all <laughs> Tito Santana, all these guys. And then I meet a guy who's got a lineage in pro wrestling. I meet Ted DiBiase. You know, I, and I'm saying to myself, did I just go into the twilight zone here? Or, you know, <laughs> and, and talk about a humbling experience. I mean, and, and Teddy knows, you know, Hawk and I were like every other guy in this wrestling business. You know, we're, we're big, brash guys, and we kind of, you know, Softened a little bit after it became a Christian man, but you know you were big brass guys, and you really don't want to give your soft side up until you get in there and you go, "Oh my gosh, look at these guys!" I mean, I <laughs> I just walked into a heck of a situation here, and I know I'm not going there as extra talent because as soon as Hawk and I walked in, Oli Oli says, "Here's your belt, and here's your belt," and we said, "What?" I said, I thought we had to wrestle for these things. He goes, ah, say you want them in Chicago. And I said, what? Okay. <laughs> okay. I said, well, this is, was pretty easy, I guess. I don't, I don't know, you know. I guess three months with Eddie Sharkey paid off, you know. <laughs> I was thinking in my head. Oh, man. But, yeah, man, it was really a pleasure. And uh, one of the greatest guys, ladies and gentlemen, if I could tell you in the wrestling business where a lot of guys are standoff, this guy right here, our guest today, Ted DiBiase, is one of the best guys that I've met in the wrestling business. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, the feeling's mutual. I mean, uh, yeah, I, 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 rem I remember those days, too. I mean, it's like, and of course, you know, I mean, I, and I went to college, played college, played some college football and everything. And, uh, I, you know, I was, in, I was in shape, but I never had the physique. Now, I mean, then that the, you you and Hawk walk in there, and it's not just physique. It's like, oh my gosh, look at these two monsters, right? And uh, and then you know, uh, you know, it's like Ole saying, well, you know, you guys, you know, they're they're, hey, they look great, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take advantage of you know, like of, of the strength. And, uh, and of course, the weakness is, you know, they haven't been working very long. <laughs> like, yeah. So. so uh, here, we're going to give them to you guys and groom them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. Oh, my gosh. What did it's it what, like? I was going to say, what did the like, belt mean back then that you have these these two young muscle heads walk in and they just get handed the belts as a as a veteran in there with all those other names that he mentioned? Uh, what's what's going through your everyone else's mind? Well, I, you know, I can't remember the exact situation as to as to why that was done the way it was done. Uh, but it was like, you know, there was a need to get things rolling, you know, you know, like kind of like shock the system, so to speak. And, uh, and because of, you know, because of these two guys, I mean, you know, you know, Joe and, and, and Mike were my gosh, you know, just massive and had the, they had the look they had, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when Goldberg came along, when Goldberg came along, you know, like Goldberg, I mean, my gosh, the guy. They, they brought him in, and he, he beats everybody. And he's never wrestled a lick, but he's got the look. You know, he's got, you know, he's you know, what as big as, as a hawk and animal, but he had he had the look and he had the physique. And, you, well, the same thing with the warrior, uh, you know. And, 
but you take what they they do have and you and you and you work with that you know and that was my job that was like um i remember when i first turned heel uh it was in mid-south and you know jyd and i junkyard dog and i had been the two top babies and it was uh, and i remember uh uh, Ernie Ladd told me, he said, Ted, be looking around for, uh, you know, we need, we need another heel. We need a good heel for you and dog, you know? And so I started thinking about that. And then I just went to him one day. I said, I found your heel. He said, who? He says, you're looking at him, you know? And so that's when I did the deal and turned heel. And now I've got to wrestle JYB. And, uh, I remember I called Terry Funk and I said, okay. I've been a baby face for a long time. I mean, I, I get it. I know how to work, but what's the best way to work? He says, anybody you work with, he says, you, you look at their strengths and you, and you, you play to their strengths. And obviously you try to stay away from things. They don't, you know, they don't do well or doesn't make them look good. So basically, basically with JYD and with Hawk and animal, it's like, you know, basically put them in the middle of the ring and work around them. You know, and bounce off of them, <laughs> and 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 that's what we did. And it's just being able to being able to do that. And of course, in the process, you know, as as Hawk and Animal went along, you know, uh, you know, the people don't know it, but they're they're learning the trade. They're learning how to work because when you get in the ring every night, night after night after night after night, uh, you start to pick up on things and. That's the thing that's missing in, in the business today, I, I think, is that that availability of getting in the ring every night in front of a crowd and listening to the crowd, and you learn from that and each new experience. I remember one, one thing I was always taught was, if you get an idea, go for it. He says, if it was wrong, then somebody will tell you and you won't do it again. But if it was right, then you, you, you found something new to add to your repertoire. So don't do anything, you know, half-assed, so to speak. You know, just, you know, if you're going to blow it, blow it going full speed. You know, and, you know, uh, Teddy, I got to give a, a testament to a guy like Ole Anderson. You know, <clears throat> along the lines of what you were saying, you know, when, when Hawk and I first came in there, I don't know if you knew the story. It was back, if you remember, when Matt Bourne got in trouble back then with right. the, some young person in West Virginia, right? And so... <clears throat> they had to take the belts off of he and Arn, and they were vacant. And he wanted to, like you say, the business was where it was. Wanted to do some kind of surprise and put a put a oomph in our wrestling business, you know. But I right. I, th- I think different from then until now, and I'll see if you agree with this. Before we had the luxury, I and mean, think about what you just said. We had guys like yourself and Brad Armstrong and Stan Hansen and Harley Race and Wahoo McDaniel's and you know, the American dream. We had all these guys, Brody, to help teach us, even though Hawk and I were green, every night we wrestled was a main event match for us. You know what I mean? So we we learned with main eventers, and now new guys today don't really have that luxury. You have a young guy against a young guy trying to learn how to work like an experienced veteran. Right. And and you're absolutely right, Joe. I mean, it's it's, it's just – the guys, you can't blame the guys because it's just not there anymore. It's like, you know, the WWE got so big, you know, and the territories, you know, couldn't compete. They died and went away. And, and so, you know, uh, that, that's why you see so much more talk and not as much action today is they're trying to compensate for the lack of that, you know, and it's just 
uh, it was nothing done intentionally. It's just the way it is. There's no, there's no breeding ground anymore. There's no, there's no farm system to feed the, the big one. And, uh, so it's hard. It is, it is hard for the young guys now because you're right. You know, it's like I would, you know, when I started, you know, every night I got in the ring, I got in the ring and on the opening or second match, you know, starting at the bottom and, but the guys I was in the ring with, even if they weren't main event guys, they were guys that had, you know, eight or 10 years of experience who could teach me. And, uh, and, and that's, that is what's missing in the business today. You know, the, the, cause the real art of what we do is improv. It's, it's, you know, you know, the finish, because that's, that's where you're going. That's, that's what gets the crowd back the next week. But the way you get there, that's, that's the art. That's the, the feeling that doing it on the fly. Well, you know, and, uh, yeah, that's something I was talking. I was talking about with my co-host Joe here one time. You know, and it's of course trying to explain the wrestling business to a non-wrestling guy. You know that every every match, and of course you learn this throughout time. Every match and every event's got a temperature to it, and you got to figure out what that temperature is and what's going to make those people go yay boo. And yeah. and uh, you can't do that with watching a. I mean, you can watch SummerSlam '97 all you want. But what you did in that SummerSlam 97 is not going to work in 2018 or 2000. Yeah. You know what I mean? So exactly. <clears throat> that's coming up here, you know. So, I mean, <clears throat> so every match you got to look and you got to say, okay, how's this crowd today? Philly may be one time one way. It may be totally different your next time you're in Philly. You know, you know, you may, they may like this certain type of heelish move or this certain type of baby face. Or they may, you may have to regroup and say, let's just throw everything out the window and go. You know, and it's just it's a different ball game. Yeah, and it's it's like it's psychology, and like what works in one town might not work in another town. It might not even work in the, like you said in the same town the second time you do it. And and uh, but you know the whole there's a whole psychology of like you know a hold the wrestling card. It's like uh, you know I always was told you know go out and watch the matches before you, and then don't duplicate anything. You know, it's like if if the guys in the match prior to you were working a headlock, well, don't go out there and work a headlock, you know, work an arm or work a leg and work it a different way, you know, do something different and you know, temperature, right? You know, it's like, for example, let's say you have a real hot tag team, which you don't see anymore. You don't see really great tag team matches anymore where you, you know, the, the, the baby face get that hot tag and the crowd erupts and, and you know they go all the way till they win, or until and you know until they get they get screwed, whatever that is on the plate for the night. But if you follow a hot match like that, and man, the people have just been screaming, and that you know they just you know blown blown the load, so to speak. Then you don't go out of the next match with the guy you're wrestling and start the match off by going toe-to-toe in the middle of the ring because the people are going to sit there and, and stare at you like, what are you doing? Why? Because they have just, you know, they've just been excited and they've just been taken to the top, and now you've got to give them time to build back up to that again. And that's things that I don't even think are taught today. What is, in both of your opinions, I'll ask this to both uh, to both of you, your opinion of why the tag team division is as weak as it is. Is it something that Vince just doesn't want to put the time and effort into, or is it something that starts even lower than that to where maybe the fans just don't get behind tag teams like they used to? 
you know, it, it's really hard for me to explain. I, I, I really don't get it. And I, I don't, I, you know, I don't pay attention as much as I used to, but, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, cause like, I remember when, when my swing, when Ted Jr. went and they, they tagged Cody, uh, up with them that, and that did, they did the whole legacy thing with Randy Orton. That was getting over. I mean, it was getting over and it was getting really hot and then all of a sudden it's gone. And that was the first tag situation I ever saw in a long time that was starting to, you know, get traction and then they just cut it. Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know, Joe, what do you think? Well, I think, uh, personally, to really be quite honest, I don't think they would ever want a tag team to get as strong as high, as strong as Hawk and I got ever again. I mean, because you get, you get kind of, I mean, even there's only one company today, when you start to get that over and you start to get over, I mean, let's face it, they put a, probably twice as much money into the single world champion, and rightly so, as, they, as any other thing in the business. Right, Ted, don't you agree? They put, mm-hmm. all, they put all the money in the world champion, so when you have a tag team come along and you get a hotter tag or you get a, what they call it, the warrior pop, more popular than your single wrestler, that doesn't look good for the show. And, and Vince is all about the production. He does not like that end of it. Okay? Mm. So that, that, that's one thing. That, that's just the way we all – I've always perceived it as a tag team. Because when you look at all the commercials and stuff before, I mean, even for WWF merchandise all, before, it was with Hogan and Warrior and Savage pretty much and, no, and nobody else. Every once in a while you'd have Piper in there or, or whoever. But you would never have Hawk and Animal. There was never any tag teams ever, ever. Mm-hmm. And when you look back through time, you can see that. It's easier now stepping back and seeing that way. But when you're in it, you don't realize it that much. You know what I mean? Mm. So yep. that, that's the way I've always perceived it. And it's not the fact that the guys aren't trying to work hard and not the fact there weren't great tag teams before. I just think that, like in the Hawk and I situation, in the timing of the business and where the business we got to be such a household thing, and then, and then we did the thing with Japan and all the filming, and then, then it became YouTube became involved, and all the other videos came out, and it just kept growing and growing. Even today, Hawk's been gone 13 years, and you would think that we were still working today full time, because the oh, pe- people are still commenting, coming for appearances, and doing all this stuff, just like we've never left. And that that that's I think the difference in you no know, and tag team wrestling is good. It's an art, but you say I don't I don't think it gets like now it's getting a lot of TV time. But you're right, Ted. I remember watching back with the legacy thing, and and back to what you're saying, it was getting so overstrong. But then you know I mean you know as well as I do, you know Randy Orton has had issues in the past, and you know if he kind of goes away for some of the things Hawk used to go away for, you know, and uh-huh, then it, yeah. puts a, it puts a damper in the gimmick that they build. Then they get ticked off and say, listen, we got $2 million in the promotion with this gimmick. Now you just move that. Now we're going to scrap it. There you go. Right. I mean, you, you know, yeah. they've done that a thousand times, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's true. It's true. It's kind of like, um, you know, uh, you can be extremely talented, but it's kind of like, you know, it's like, uh, I always tell guys I'm preaching, your talent can take you to a place where your character won't sustain you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In other words, you know, uh, you can be a great talent, but, you know, if you're doing stupid stuff uh, that you shouldn't be doing and, you know, then Vince is the boss is looking at you and going, you know, uh, I'd like to make you the world champion, 
but I'm afraid to put the belt on you because I'm afraid I'm going to get a phone call in the middle of the night that you <laughs> tore up a, a hotel room or, you know, been arrested for something, you know. Or been passed and, out and you're uh, passed out in your ramen soup. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, but I tell yeah. you what, you, you know what I think is missing today to Teddy a little bit, and you know, and going back and talking to this, it's kind of amazing, and it's a great reputation in wrestling. When you look back on it throughout, throughout the last 30 years per se, right, even say 40 years, most of your top guys in wrestling out of this amount of time have either come out of the state of Minnesota or have come out of West Texas. And the popular – and what I will say about Teddy and guys like Teddy and Hanson and Brody and the Funks and all these guys – Everyone that has come out of t- West Texas, like Tully Blanchard, has stayed, and I call it staying in your lane. You stay in your lane, you stay, you're, you're country boys at heart, and you stay uh-huh. in your lane and you know where your gimmick needs to go. And I think right. that, I think guys today watch YouTube and they watch all these matches and they go through camp and they say, oh, I think that match that Animal Hawk did look great, or I think the look that Animal Hawk did, okay, just take it for instance, like the Ascension. You can't uh-huh. even p- compare the Ascension to Animal Hawk because people are just going to go, you know yeah. what I mean? Or, or make somebody a new million-dollar man. You're never going to do it, you know, mm-hmm. because the million-dollar man knew where his lane was, knew what his lane was, knew how to beat a million-dollar man with Virgil and everything else, you're not going to be able to redo that again, you know? And I think that's one of the ha- things that happened today. But uh, I was just sitting there with Joe here talking earlier, looking back, and, I'm, you know, and a lot of this brought this up with the passing of Tom Zink, you know, um, uh, recently. And I said, I got back to thinking, man, there's a lot of guys out of Minnesota. I said, then we were talking, I said, but yeah, there's a lot of guys, more guys out of West Texas. That have gotten into wrestling, and the, the list goes on and on of guys. I mean, yeah, and, it was and, like um, the uh, you know the guys that uh, were athletes at West Texas State. I, you know, it was incredible, and I was I was one of them. But I mean, I think it started with uh, uh, obviously start, started with the Funk brothers. You know, Terry and and Dory, and the the influence of the Funks because Dory Funk Senior was the promoter of the Amarillo Territory, and that's where West Texas State is. Uh, and, and then like Bobby Duncombe came out of there and yeah, then another uh, good athlete with, with too, the Funks yeah. and, and then Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody, Dusty Rhodes, Dusty didn't play football. He was, but he played baseball at West Texas state, Dusty Rhodes. And then, and then after Dusty was Stan Hansen and then came me and Tito and, um, Tully Blanchard, we were all three of us were on the same team. That's awesome. And then after us was Barry Windham and Kelly Kaniski, who didn't stay in the business, but he was in for a while. And uh, uh, Manny Fernandez was another guy. So there's a bunch of guys that came out of it and just didn't become wrestlers, became stars. Yeah, and top stars. Just like the stories you tell out of Minnesota. I mean, it's just a bunch of big dudes that it's like, you know what? Why don't we just get in the ring and beat each other up? No, but the, it, you know, but here it takes more than that, though. I mean, well, no, what I'm saying is that's you know how you guys get into the rest. I, yes, I know that you guys had to work hard to and fine tune the craft, but I'm just saying that it's all this you know large group of guys. You're doing something together, and you're you know for Joe, for you, you guys were. I mean, most of you guys were bouncers yeah. at Grandma B's, and Eddie Sharkey comes up and says, "Hey, why don't you guys?" Start being wrestlers, and then Ted, what you're you just listing off all those guys that you were playing other sports with, and it's, hey, instead of these sports, 
let's go into pro wrestling. But you know, I think I think it goes further than that, Joe. I think it goes further than that now with uh, well, Teddy. Teddy's the same way. He played football in college with these guys, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the guys, whether it was two years after, three years after, five years after, all there was always a group of guys that played together. So the, there's that camaraderie with the sport, the level of comfortability, right? Same with us. I mean, I've known Barry Darslow and Nikita and those guys since I was 17 years old. They were two years older than me, but I knew all those guys. So I already kind of grew up with those guys, even pre-bouncing, pre-wrestling days. So when you're going to something that you're more comfortable with, there's kind of, man, it's an unspoken telepathy. It's hard for me to explain, and there's a level of trust there that you know that guy's got your back, right, and you got his back. Even though wrestling is entertainment, there's that level of comfortability. And uh, I would yeah. believe those guys out of West Texas were a lot of the same kind of concepts, you know? Right. And, you know, and, and the guys that taught us, I mean, you know, I mean, you, you know, you think of, uh, you know, Minnesota and, and uh, you know, Vern Gagne, who had a, uh, you know, his understanding of the psychology of wrestling was pretty much the same as it was just a group of guys, uh, Dory Funk, Dory Funk Sr., uh, and Amarillo, um, and, you know, and then Dory and, uh, Eddie Graham, who started Florida wrestling and is, you know, considered to be one of the all time greats, you know, uh, so there's, you know, you, you, so you got, you know, you, you got Vern Gagne and then you got the, you got Funk and, and then you got, you know, you got Bill Watts and Bill Watts was a product of, of Eddie Graham. Because a lot of a lot of big stars were made in the mid south <clears throat> as well, and um, and it's a psychology. They share their same psychology. The business, you know, it's like the first time I ever went to New York. I went to New York in uh, in '79. I was only there for like nine, eight or nine months. That the first go around. My my last match was with some new guy they called Hulk Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> and, I had Hogan's first match at Madison Square Garden, and uh, uh, and then I went back to uh, uh, I went back to Mid South. But uh, I was really not impressed with the wrestling in New York. It was like I was like, wow. I mean, it was it wasn't it wasn't solid. It wasn't you know convincing. Uh, I was it was easy to see through, but you had these. You, you had this great big huge population to draw from in New York and in Boston and all those big cities and I think that's why they did real well because you know as a worker I looked at the work and go golly you know this is subpar but it was subpar based on what I had been you know I had been subjected to and uh, of course the the work got a lot better but the work got a lot better because the talent that ended up you know, becoming the us, you know, the, the, the late eighties and early nineties were guys who all started in those territories that had the strong psychology, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think, I think that Joe, uh, Joe here, my partner said, uh, just hit the nail right on the head, you know, asking that question, because when you think about all the guys you just listed that, that we were, when we started that ended up making it to New York, everybody attacked this thing. See, there's a certain level of discipline when you play sports as an athlete and you hold yourself up to a higher standard. So when you go into the wrestling now, 
Now the guys get into the wrestling business, they know it's entertainment. We really didn't yeah. go into it realizing it was total entertainment. We all had to fight each other for our moves that we wanted to get. And if you screwed up, someone lets you know real quick. I remember sitting there in Cleveland, Ohio. Ted, I don't know if you remember this. You were still in, in Georgia at the time. I remember Stan Hansen taking me and Henny and Harley Race and said, listen here, you two muscle-headed buffoons, you guys punch that wall until you quit hurting people. Because you and Hawk, you guys said, you either throw punches that you're not going to kill us or just don't throw them. Because I was throwing punches like like cinder blocks, right? And Because, you know, <laughs> when we went, because Dead Sharky didn't really get in the ring with us as much. So he said it all looked good when Rude and I's noses were crooked and we were busted lips in the ring. We were training camp. You know, yeah, it all looks good because it was it was real. <laughs> yeah, it should look good. The guy's walking around stumbling after you hit him, you know. But the, yeah. but yeah, but I think that's a different. I mean, your your attitude was different. Not that it's any better than the guys today, but you're just, you're just trained a different way. And you're right, Ted. During that whole era that we were talking about, the late '80s, early '90s, the guys that were in the Northeast Territory were all pretty much kind of working the shoot. I mean, working at real stiff shoot, and the believability of the business was a lot different. Yeah, and uh, that's, you know, that's, you know, and I don't know if you could ever get that back, but uh, maybe, I, uh, you know, I, I know that uh, from going down to the developmental center in Orlando, what I've seen there, I like, because I think they're teaching them right. It's just where, you know, where, where do they come from? You know, where do those guys come from today? You know, um, you know, you, you know, if you want to, to be in a business like ours, you got to want it, you got to want it and you got to love it. And it, you know, it, it can't be like, okay, I didn't make it in the NFL. So I'll be a wrestler. You yeah. Know, yeah. That's uh, true. If, if that's your attitude, go do something else. You know, I got into wrestling because I loved it. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, it wasn't just like a means to an end. It was, you know, for me, it had been my life. I grew up in it, but, uh, you gotta love it. And, you know, and, 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 you know, and that, and plus you were made to respect it and appreciate it. That was the difference. I remember, I mean, the old school, you know, when I, when I first started, you know, it was just like when I was a kid with going in the dressing room with my dad. Well, now I'm, I'm one of the boys, but I'm, you know, I'm a brand new guy and nobody cares who my dad was. And, you know, I, I, I sat in the dressing room and I didn't speak unless I was spoken to because I was a rookie. I was a new guy. And I wouldn't, you know, you go into a dressing room like that and try to show off, you're going to get pounded. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, how you're, much you're going to be, you're, you're going to be made to show respect. Boy, how much best. that's changed now, right? You go to the oh, locker room now, and the yeah. guy's telling you what he wants you to do, and he's a, he's, he's an indie guy, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. You, you know, know it, it's funny. It's funny how a lot of things in this wrestling business, Ted, get intertwined. You know, you talk about your last match being with Hogan. My first impression with wrestling, yeah, I've watched wrestling in the AWA, the High Flyers, and Greg Gagne and Nick Bockwinkle and that. Way before, I'm talking like I'm 18 years old now, right? I'm working out at the gym. These two big blonde guys come walking into my gym. One of them was Dizzy Ed Boulder, and the other one was Hulk Hogan. And Dizzy Ed Boulder went on to be, be Brutus the Barber Beefcake, mm -hmm. right? And Hogan came in. I looked at the guy, Hogan, and I said, and of course, you know, back then, you know, you're a young kid, arms is the whole big thing. Got to have big arms, big arms. I looked at that kid, and I said, I said 
my Lord, look at the size of his freaking triceps. And I looked at him and said, this is crazy. I said, what is he doing in town? He said, he's, his name is Hulk Hogan. He's a wrestler. He's going to wrestle Nick Bockwinkle. And when I heard that, that was like the first time I bought a ticket to the St. Paul Civic Center. And I sat in about the middle section. And I looked and I saw this big behemoth. Because back then at the Civic Center, you had just, you didn't even have ropes. You just walked through the crowd and went to the ring. And Hogan looked like a giant because he was a giant, walking through the crowd to the ring. And I said, how cool is this? And I called my dad up right after this. I, I said, I, I think I found something I want to do. You know? And right after that, shortly, I was, of course, Joe, I told you the story. I was bouncing at Grandma B's, and then, bam, Ed Sharkey is our bartender. Man, how, what, how crazy is that, that you see Hogan? I go to the match shortly after that. Talk about karma. Ed Shark is the, the the bartender of the bar we're all working at. He says, hey, I'm going to do a wrestling camp. Now, this was about six months after I seen Hogan, right? But still, I'm going to do the wrestling camp. And I told my dad, well, you know what? I'm going to do it. There you go. Now, the rest wow. is the rest is what it is. But uh, another name intertwined with Ted and I is Hulk Hogan. You know what I mean? Yep. Who would have thought that, it, you know, it would have it worked out like that? And, you you know, you, you didn't have – the programs with Hogan that that Ted ended up having throughout your careers that you guys you guys were you his first match in Japan Joe were you Hogan's first match I knew you guys had the big match in no, Japan no no that no wasn't no his first match no though, no right? no Hogan wrestled he, he Hogan was a big name okay. in Japan man he still is he he he, he would wrestle Sagaguchi and Antonio Inoki and Giant Baba when Hogan wrestled Inoki the whole state the whole country would shut down because they wanted to see Hogan and Inoki go. Because yeah. Hogan or Inoki fought Muhammad Ali on Wide World of Sports back in the day. Right. You know, the only Japanese wrestler to fight a pro wrestler. I mean, he's a great name. So Hogan wrestled them, and they had battles. And then when Hawk and I wrestled Hogan and Tenru in Tokyo, that was another big mm -hmm. deal because it was Hulk. Finally, the Hulk Hogan and Road Warriors went right. against each other. That was the first and only time we ever did. Right, and then you know we're we're on the you know Ted on the phone here just had the the huge huge battles with with Hulk throughout the uh, throughout your career as especially as the Million Dollar Man. I what talk us through what that was you know, the the pressure that was on when you were when you're putting a program with with Hulk Hogan. Well, you know the thing about uh, Hulk, uh, you know, and I, I admire uh, I'm, I admire Terry. He's a good guy. Uh, he he never forgets. Um, I had that match, you know, I was, it was the last match I was going to have in, in uh, the, back then it was the WWF and 79 Vince senior was still the, the, the boss. And, and so I knew they wanted me, I'm leaving. I knew they wanted me to get this guy over. And I, of course he was the heel then and I was the baby face. And, uh, so I went to see to, to Vince senior and I said, I, I know you want this guy over strong. What do you, how do you want me to do this? And he just said, Ted, he said, you know what? He said, I know you'll do it well. He said, so I'm going to give you liberty to do it the way you want. And I was like, wow, which made me want to get him over even more, you know, because uh, he put that confidence in me. So, you know, we, we had that, we had the match and it was over and, uh, you know, I made him a bad guy. And he came up and he shook my hand and he said, he said, man, thank you so much. He said, I owe you one brother. And so I don't see him for a long time and I think he came through uh, Mid-South one time made a, made an appearance for, for Bill Watts and 
the first time I'd seen him since I left New York. And he came up and shook my hands and he said, I still owe you one. And so then, you know, the whole WWF thing starts happening, WrestleMania. And Vince signs me, uh, start doing the vignettes for the million dollar man. And, and then, uh, I know the whole time, you know, I, you know, the first six weeks that I was on television, you know, was all vignettes. And, uh, so then we do a TV and, and, uh, this is the first time I actually see Terry and he, he walked up and he shut my hand and he goes, it's payback time, brother. He never forgot, man. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, pressure. Yeah. But I mean, it's business is business, but, uh, uh, you know, it was really a lot of, a, a lot of fun that, and, and I just, you know, I've always admired him for realizing that, you know, the guy, he, he doesn't forget what people treat him right. And, uh, and, uh, I don't know, that was just some, it was, it was special for me. And the whole, the, the other thing that helped me get over as a million dollar man was Andre. I mean, you know, they call it the rub, you know, uh, you know, you, you rub a, a new guy alongside an established pro and you want to help elevate him. Well, what better way to elevate me than to put me with Andre the Giant and that whole thing, the WrestleMania four thing, the lead up to it, the, uh, uh, the thing at uh, Marcus Square Arena, the twin referees. And uh, we, we screwed the Hulkster with the tw- uh, with uh, Dale he- uh, Earl Hebner. <laughs> and, <laughs> And until I, you know what, until I got to that building that night, I never knew that Dave Hebner had a twin. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, uh, just a, you know, just that whole angle. And then, and then I got to wrestle Hulkster uh, and Randy and Hulkster and whoever, you know, for just about, almost a year, you know, all over the country and, uh, and Andre. And uh, that was, you know, that was, you know, uh, you know, people say, well, I said I can't pick one match, but I can I can pick a, a time in my career that was uh, that was probably higher than, than any other time. That that would have to be it. You know, um, Joe uh, Ted, you knows this. I think it's important for the real people to realize, or especially our listeners and your and yourself, that when you get asked to wrestle a guy like Hulk Hogan, okay, or you get asked to wrestle a guy uh, wrestle a tag team like the Road Warriors, the guys that are asked to do that are hand-picked mm-hmm. by the bosses, hand-picked by the guy who's running the company to elevate that new guy or that talent to a level they need to get to. So it's actually a testament to Ted's ability in the ring and what a consummate professional he always has been in the wrestling business for have uh, Vince Sr. and then Vince Jr. that came along to say, hey, man, we need you here to make Hulk Hogan. You know, and be one of the guys to help Hulk Hogan on this rise to fame as, to as huge as Hogan got. You know what I mean? So that, that, and that's an important thing for people to realize because, I mean, heck, you could have got put in the ring with Joe Blow and he would have meant nothing. You know, but you didn't. You got put in the ring with the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. So that helped elevate Hogan because at the end of the day, let's face it, everybody knows Hogan's going to win. You may screw him once or twice, but at the end of the day, he's going to be the man. And, you know, and, and I think it's a big misconception in the business. People will always wonder, oh, why this guy, why this guy, why that guy? Well, that's why, because a certain guy can make that guy look better than he knows how to make himself look. And, and that's good, man. Yeah, you know, people have asked me, 
you know, like, gosh, you know, Ted, you're one, one of the guys who, who should have been world champion and never, never was, you know, and it's, it's, it's not disappointing. And I said, well, you know, I guess, you know, there's part of me that would say, oh, okay, yeah. But I said, but at the end of the day, you know, in reality, um, yeah, what it's a, it's a business. And, and, uh, now I, I would say this back in the NWA days, like the NWA world champion, whoever, whoever the world champion was in the, in the territorial regional days of wrestling, he had to be the kind of guy who could wrestle anybody because, you know, that, you know, of course, if you were a regional, you know, like, I mean, you know, Vern had his own world champion just in his territory, you know, and, uh, but it was a big territory. Uh, but the NWA champion wrestled in Florida, wrestled in mid South, wrestled in, you know, uh, Georgia, you know, he wrestled in, you know, you know, uh, mid Atlantic, he wrestled in a lot of territories. So when he goes into that territory, you know, the world champion in those days, and, and except for his home territory, like say, for example, the funks, if they wrestled in Amarillo, they were baby faces, but every place else they were heels. And so as a heel, they would go into the, that territory and they would wrestle the top baby face. And their job was to, you know, even as a world champion, is to make that guy look really good. And, you know, hour-long matches and what have you, you know. And, and so in that regard, yeah, the world champion, whoever the guy is carrying the belt, you, you got to have respect for him because he's, he's that, that caliber of a wrestler. Uh, you know, but, you know, by the time I get to WWF, you know, it's like, it's not so much the, the, the belt because the belts were more like props because uh, it was just, um, and maybe that's a, that's a poor word to use, but for example, the, the idea at WrestleMania four initially was that somehow I would, I would screw whoever and become the, the champ. Well, you know, if you're in the WWF and you're the, you're a heel and you're the champion, you're not going to be the champion very long because, you know, the, it, it's the good guys that sell the merch. <laughs> and so yeah. you're going to want your world champion to be a baby face. And so if you're a, uh, a heel champion, you're not going to be there very long. You're either going to lose it back to the champion or you're going to be a transitional champion. You're going to take it off of one guy and put it on another guy. And so when Pat Patterson came to me and he said, Ted, what if we don't do this? What if you don't win at WrestleMania? You know, and all the smart marks think that's what's going to happen. But you don't win. It backfires. You don't get the title. But in your arrogance then, you just decide to create your own championship. And as soon as he said it, I said, that's the thing to do. Because that was going to put more heat on me. I, you know, people are going to hate me more for creating my own title and going all over the, the country, you know, declaring myself a champion than had I been the champion. If you follow me, it's like, it's about money and it's about making money. And, 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 and that's, that's, that's what it's important. So where the titles are concerned, sometimes, you know, sometimes they're significant. Sometimes they're just props. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you how I'm going to write this down in history for our listeners out there. I'm going to admit, 
the ignorance of Road Warrior Animal, I, I just assumed because of the caliber of wrestler and worker that Ted was that he was world champion. I just took it for granted that the guy the guy had to be world champion. He, like you say, you got to be one of those guys that goes from territory to territory, being able to wrestle anybody, wrestle a broomstick or a chair if you had to to make a match, you know. And I, I thought that <laughs> Teddy, I thought you had won the title. Oh man, that's funny. But you know, Joe, along the same lines as Ted's talking about, I remember what he did with that million dollar belt. And he would put that million-dollar belt up, and at the end of the day, he had more heat leaving with that million-dollar belt every match. I remember one time wrestling for Giant Baba. And I don't know if Ted remembers this. We, we brought those international tag team belts back from Japan, from all Japan. We got so much heat from Crockett and everybody because we put, we did our interviews, we put the international belts up against the NWA belts. <laughs> well, we told Giant Baba, said, listen, man, really nobody in the U.S. really knows what these belts are because they weren't very popular in the U.S. Because if you didn't have wrestling magazines, you, 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 you remember now, this is pre-computer. Mm-hmm. You didn't have wrestling magazines. There was no Japanese TV showing in the U.S. You didn't know what the international titles were. And Hawk and I literally looked at these belts and got a couple of marks and said, wow, these belts look cool. And I said, the Giant Baba said, I have an idea. Why don't we take these belts back to the U.S. for you? We promise we won't drop them ever, and we'll, we because he knew how popular we were in the U.S. I said we'll make these U.S. these international belts mean something, and then bring them back to Japan and drop them to whoever you want to. I think we ended up dropping them to Choshu and somebody, but you know which made it a big deal. But we did that. We had those international belts for a year. I remember we were wrestling against the Midnight Express and a bunch of guys with the international titles. Yeah. It, it's it's funny how that works, it, but but it's about being the guy in the ring that everybody wants to see wrestle his opponent and get his butt kicked. You know, that's yeah. what it's all yeah. about. You know, I wanted to uh, – I, I did want to get into more of the, you know, the, the things that you did during your career, Ted, and uh, the the way that uh, – I, I mean, I guess maybe you, you carried yourself as the million-dollar man, but I did want to ask Joe if you ever – did you ever benefit from hanging out with the million-dollar man, getting to spend all of Vince's money? Well, you know, um, I remember a couple times when uh, the jokester Mr. Perfect was alive, and uh, we would be <laughs> we would be eating dinner in WWF days, and he would literally sit there and wait to see what room that Ted DiBiase checked into, and I said, "What are you doing this for?" He says, "Well, he's the million dollar man, so let's eat dinner. Let's eat dinner. And charge it to his room." <laughs> <laughs> so, so Hawk and I and Henning a few times charged our meals. I don't think I've ever told Teddy this. Charged our meals to the million dollars man room, just taking it for granted that Vince was giving him all these hundred dollar bills and he was paying for it. You know. <laughs> oh now I now <laughs> now you know when you go in there and you got a hundred and fifty dollar room service bill and you've not even had nothing but a coke, right? Yeah, uh, and I'd go down to the front desk and go, I don't know who charged this to my room, but it wasn't me. <laughs> and they would take it off. So. Oh, man. <laughs> so Vince That's didn't fun. even have to pay for it that day. It's no, just... no, uh-uh. no. I think that was the biggest rib of all. They all thought it was Vince's money, and it wasn't. Yeah, when I, you're on the road. You know, but there, there, there were times when I was expected to do that. And, of course, the way Vince told me, he said, now, if you abuse this, you're going to lose it. So I didn't do it often, but I would pick my spots. But just as a rib, I remember I walked up to Flair one day and I said, Rick, here's the difference between you and me. 
you're spending all your money in that bar every night. I'm spending Vince's. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's and great. getting it back. God, that's a, what a life. What a life. But we do know, and, uh, you know, we wanted to have you on today because your, uh, your movie, The Price of Fame, is about to, uh, about to be released on Amazon, Ted. And it kind of does talk through your career, your time as the, as the Million Dollar Man, and some of the things that that led to. And then from that, where, where you are now in life. You've mentioned a few times already that you're, you're now a pastor, that you're preaching. And I, I guess what happened as the Million Dollar Man has led you down this road to where you are today. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I had a strong faith when I was very young, it carried me through my dad's death and, and watching my mother sink into alcohol. Uh, but when I got to college and uh, yeah, I'd gotten a scholarship to play college football out of this little town, you know, I got all full of myself and that lasted about 20 years, you know, uh, became all about Ted. And, and so at, at the, at the very height of my, you know, fame and popularity, you know, I called home the one day, the day after WrestleMania 8, and my wife confronts me with the fact that I've been cheating. And it was like, um, it was it was instantaneous. It was like, in a fraction of a second, it was like, you fool. You have probably now blown the greatest thing in your life, all to, all to stroke your ego. Because I, I never, I didn't have a problem marriage. I had a wonderful wife. I was just on this massive ego trip and, uh, you know, the Bible says pride goes before the fall and it's true. And, uh, it's a very long story, but by the grace of God, uh, not only did, I, did, did we weather that storm and my wife forgive me and my marriage was restored and, uh, my relationship with her you know, and my children and, and, and the documentary tells that story. Um, you know, but, um, it, it eventually led me you know, and this 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 happened in '92, and it wasn't until the year two, 2000 that I that I stepped away from wrestling altogether uh, and started in evangelism, and uh, have done so for 17 years, and uh, um, and that's a story that's too long to tell here as well as how those things. You know, you you start. You know, I would, I would, I would be invited to a church, and then I'd be invited to another church. It was like a snowball rolling downhill. The more I went, the more I was invited. And when you start seeing other people's lives change, you know, and you and you realize that it's not you, but it's what God has done through you that would totally change someone's life. You know, I said I've wrestled in front of eighty thousand people. I was I wrestled Joe, a hawk and animal at, at Wembley Stadium. Probably the, it's the biggest crowd I ever wrestled in front of my life I said but and that is a thrill there was a huge thrill but it doesn't come close to seeing one person's life get changed and so um that was that was what that was the the catalyst of what started me down that path and and I continue to do that now uh, and that's basically what the film was for it was you know in the hopes that even if you're not a person of faith that if you watch this film, you know, I hope that you would understand that all the things that you tasted, you think are going to make you happy. They really don't, uh, you know, uh, they might make you happy for a little while, but they're never going to, they're never going to bring you peace in your life. Um, you know, and, you know, and, and, and I just have to say this, I love Rick. 
I love Ric Flair. I've known him. I've wrestled him uh, a zillion times, and um, he'll always be a friend. But I, you know, it was it was just I watched the thirty thirty on on Rick, and I was so I was sad at the end because they asked him. They said, Rick. They said, so how do you want to be remembered? And he said, Well, I obviously won't be remembered as a great husband or father. So I guess I just want to be remembered as one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And I said, you know, that's just, that's just sad. Yeah. My heart, uh, my heart dropped when I read that, when I watched that too, man, you know? Yeah. And, I, and it's just, um, you know, and I, I gave Rick a copy of my book, uh, some time ago, the first book that I did. And, you know, you know, and he came up to me and he, you know, he said, you know what, Ted, he said, you did it right. He said, I just wish I could do that. But one of the things that was telltale to me, and I, I knew that Rick had been adopted, but what I didn't know is that his adoptive dad didn't really have a good relationship with him. I never knew that until I watched the documentary. He was like, he didn't come to his games. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't, a, you know, he wasn't a part of his life. So I look at that and go, Rick Flair is Rick who he is because his entire life he's been screaming, Look at me, look at me. Yeah, a lot Please, of truth somebody in that. look at me because he, he never had the affirmation of his father. And uh, it's sad. It's just sad. I love Rick to death. Uh, well, and Teddy, that hits on a good point, man, of how strong that a male role is in a family unit, you know. And uh, I was yeah. telling my partner here, Joe Roderick, my co-host here, about the story that <clears throat> I, I remember when I was looking for a pathway in my life, and I, I, I just, I don't know what dawned on me one day, and later on I, I remembered that it was the Holy Spirit. I looked at me one day, and I said, I need to do something for my kids. And now this was after my mom had already been passed away for 11 years and stuff, and I, you know, which I, like you, stepped away from the Catholic faith because, I mean, I was an altar boy, the, rang the bells, drank, I stuck sips of the priest wine and everything when I was a kid, you know. And I stepped away because I thought, hey, what kind of guy takes my mother? My mom was a sweetheart, right? The sweetheart of sweethearts, a, a beautiful lady. And then one day it just dawned on me, what am I going to do? And then when yourself and Nikita said, hey, we got this event in Scottsdale, Arizona called AIM, Athletes International Ministry Convention. And I sat there and I hummed back and forth. Do I go? Do I not go? Do I go? Do I not go? And I made the choice to go. And it was probably the best choice I have ever made in my life. And I tell that to people because when I stepped in there to that convention and I saw not only Nikita and Teddy, and but I saw guys that were from the NFL, from the National Hockey League, and from this sport and that sport, Olympic athletes, regular people, superstar Billy Graham and all these guys. I'm going, wow, this is a cavalcade of stars and you know what? It proved to me that day that being a Christian man or being a Christian woman, there is no shame in that, and there's no such thing as a boring Christian. It's just a different lifestyle and a different view on things, you know? And, uh, and so I went there, and that's where I got baptized by you guys, uh, which is one of the proudest days of my life. And from that day on, I've lived, tried to live my life as best I can according to those kind of values uh, on, on what I believe in, you know? And uh, there's no such thing as a closet Christian. Either you believe in God or you don't believe in God. And that's pretty much the bottom line. It's your own personal relationship with him. 
and you have to make that the best. And you got to understand, you know, it, he, he, he's your father. Either you want to obey your father or you, or you don't, you know. And the one thing I learned about with doing a lot of speaking with you guys was you got road A and road B to go down. We've already seen what road A leads to, and it leads to guys like Pillman and Hawk and Henning and all these other guys. And then lead road B, road B are the guys that are living healthy and, and living a decent life. And that's and if I could help one person go to down road B, then I like you, Ted. I feel like I did my job somehow, you know. But it, um, I remember going down to that convention, Joe, and there was a guy named a pastor named. Now I've seen this pastor on TV before, Tommy Barnett, Tommy Barnett Sr. And this guy was the hugest. And the one guy I've never thought would have been a wrestling fan, Tommy told me he goes, "I am the biggest closet wrestling fan that you would ever meet in your life." And when we got to wrestle on his church, and right, Teddy, there's probably about, what, you'd say six, 7,000 people in his church. We wrestled on his stage in the auditorium, hmm. in a church. He, he, uh, Joe, he told me, you know, he, every year at his pastor's conference, Tommy would do what they call an illustrated sermon. And so that year, he, he used what we had been doing around the country, you know, our wrestling show as as the bait the wrestling show was the bait to get to get you know and they had he had a fleet of buses he would go to the inner city of phoenix and i had pastors telling me that they they told people they had a wrestling show at the church and they just jumped on the bus it had never been so easy to fill the buses and it was the largest crowd he the, the church was full they they had us they had a screen outside and they had a screen also over in the the gymnasium of the of the church and all those locations were full. And he said it was the largest response to an altar call ever given at Phoenix First Assembly of God Church. And what was the bait? A wrestling show. That's pretty cool. You know, it, it was what was great at the time is that, you know, Teddy had uh, a couple companies. You know, he's got his Heart of David Ministries and he's got the Power Wrestling Alliance. And when we would go in there and do shows, Joe, if I could explain to you, even the shows we did in uh, – Teddy, what's the pastor's name in uh, Oklahoma we did shows at? Oklahoma. Gosh, you know what? I can't remember, Joe. We, we did, we did it in that parking lot. Remember we did it in the parking lot of that church the one time? Oh, yeah. And we had like 5,000 people, and there were so many people that came up to do the altar call that the ring started at the buckle. No, <laughs> oh we, we would call people oh, in the oh, ring. God. You know, and, oh, we, we we call people in the ring, and it did. I mean, it did. It went, it it went down, and I was just so thankful that there wasn't anybody under it. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it, it, you know, and I told Joe Roderick the story too about Kenny or the Teddy when uh when I I came home after all this happened when I became a Christian, right? I I went down, uh, I came home to work out one day after wrestling in Albuquerque. And I walk into my gym, and I go get a drink. And this is how funny God works, right? And people people will say, uh, you're Bible banging and everything else. No, I don't see it, bro. There's nothing that happens by coincidence because I'm in the gym, get a drink of water. I turn around. There's four 300-pound guys in my gym. Those are four guys from the Christian power team, John Jacobs' Christian power team. What is the coincidence? I just get back from Tommy Barnett's thing. I'm with Nikita. Nikita gives me his book, Breaking the Chains. I read that. I've thrown it in my bag four or five times. I read it this one time for whatever reason. And now I'm with John Jacobs' guys. And then I started doing stuff with the Christian Bauer team, breaking big, you know, 14 cement blocks with forearms and, and everything else. It's, there's no coincidence in any of that stuff, you know. 
And uh, it, it, it's just great, man. It's like you say, Teddy, if you can help one person out, you're doing a great job. And, you know, and, it, and, it, and it's all in the big man upstairs' glory. I mean, heck, when I sat there one time and I told Joe Roderick this, Ted, when, when I sat there and we all watched Sean and, and Hawk, Sean Michaels and Hawk cry like babies and ask each yeah. other and said, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry for being a jerk to you, I'm sorry for being a jerk to you, and ask God for this forgiveness – there's something magical happening in his kingdom for sure. Absolutely, bro. And, and that's, that, that's the thing. The, the, the documentary, I, I just, uh, it tells our story, the story of uh, my personal redemption, the redemption of my marriage, the, 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 the healed relationship with my, with my boys and the father-son relationship. And again, uh, just, just, you know, wanting people and, and the funny come, the irony is, uh, that coming from a guy who was on television, uh, you know, flouting the fact that money could buy everything is now saying it's not true. <laughs> and, and, uh, that you can have all that stuff and still be empty. Well, and, man, and, I, um, I, I encourage it, everybody it's, it's out proven, there. It's proven fact that that 90, 90%, 90 plus percent of the people that hit the lotto and become rich overnight end up worse off than they were before they won the money. It ain't the money. Yeah, no kid, man. So, well, I encourage everybody to see The Price of Fame. I look forward to seeing that movie, man. I think it's going to be great. And, you know, and of course, we'll use the hook because the million-dollar man's name is what's going to drive them there. But uh, I think when they see the message at the end of this thing, man, they're going to be real – really impressed because it's hard not to be really impressed. You know, uh, Ted, I, I got to tell you a story. You know, my, my father just passed away this year, right? And I'm with my brother, Mark, who was, uh, was Mark's, Mark's, you know, he used to be one of the wrecking crew. He's a world champion with WCW. And uh, he was always a kind of a Scientology type guy, you know? And uh, my father was uh, basically not eating or drinking for four days in a row. And I knew his end was coming. And uh, he looks at my brother Mark and says, Mark, go get your brother Joe. I have to use the restroom and go lift my dad up and have him take a couple steps. And all of a sudden, I feel this big gust of wind come out of my dad's sails. My dad's arms were around my shoulders giving me a hug, and they fell off. I looked up at my brother Mark, and I said, Mark, I think he's gone. And at that point, my brother I could see my brother Mark take a half step back, and his eyes got wide open. And I said, did you feel that? And he goes, yes, I felt that. So anybody that tells me that the rush of the Holy Spirit or your spirit is not a physical feeling is freaking nuts, and I'll stand that to the day I die. Because my mm -hmm. brother Mark said, this has changed me forever. And that was the major thing. It wasn't the fact that that happened because that has happened to me before with the Holy Spirit, feeling that strength and that feeling. It's the fact that my brother says to me, who's not a, wasn't a believer, Wow, I've felt that. That's changed me forever. And and we t we talk about it all the time, you know. My dad, I mean, that was the blessing that my dad and the Lord gave us is that we felt his spirit go, you know. And uh, yeah. you could almost feel it. It was almost like a, f a slight gust of wind you could feel go over your face. And, man, that's the hardest thing to describe. It was really good. But it's almost like it's, it's the same type of feeling you have when you – make the decision you had to make for yourself and your wife and your marriage and your family. It's, it's a real good thing, man. So the price of fame, I think it's going to be an awesome movie. I cannot wait to watch it, Ted. I look forward to it. And it'll be, uh, as Ted, as we've said, it'll be on Amazon starting on December 22nd. So people will be able to, uh, to find it there 
as uh, as well. Thank you, guys, and, and it'll uh, eventually. It's it's got. I know it's supposed to be going to iTunes, and uh, uh, eventually, I think uh, Walmart is going to be picking up picked up in Walmart on DVD. I'm not sure when that is, but uh, there's several ways that uh, you can do it. I just want to encourage everybody to do that. Guys, thanks for having me on today, man. I really have enjoyed it. Well, I'll tell you, thank you very much, man. Uh, prayers go out to your family. Hope your wife has a speedy recovery. And, um, you know, I, I look forward to seeing you down the road soon, buddy. All right, my friend. Uh, God bless you. And Merry Christmas, guys. Yep. Merry Christmas to you, too. And there he goes, the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, joining us here on the What a Rush podcast. Awesome to uh, awesome to catch up with him. Some of those stories, I mean, my God, you guys have known each other for over 30 years, and you're, you guys are sharing stories that you didn't know about. And, I mean, you didn't know he held the title, and he didn't know that Kurt Henning was charging dinners to uh, to his room all, <laughs> all those yeah. years later. I, yeah, bro, these, these are things you can talk about and laugh about later in life, you know, but uh, – it, it was definitely, yeah, man, Ted was one of the guys, you know, if there's one of the guys in the locker room when you're young and inexperienced that you look up to, that you need to go ask for advice. That's probably the problem in today's wrestling. The young guys need to go and ask your elder guy or ask your guy that's a legend or a Hall of Famer. Go ask him to watch your match. Don't make him come up to you to say hello in the locker room. Go get, get your butt off the chair, man, and go say hello to him. Because without him paving the road and the guys that paved the road before him, you wouldn't have that chair to sit on. You know, and that knowledge is knowledge. There's no price. Knowledge is wealth, bro. You know what I mean? That's an old saying, but you, you, the price of knowledge, you can't put any price on what you know. Ted will tell you everybody has a price. Everybody's got a price, the million dollar man. It's um, great hearing that laugh in just regular conversation. Bro, classic. One of the iconic openings for any song in the history of WWF or WWE is the... <laughs> you know, I can't even do it well. You know, Teddy's just got that deep, groveling Southern charm laugh. You know, so it's it's pretty crazy. It uh, it really is. And then uh, so next week on the show, we're going to go a completely different way. We're going to interview a guy that uh, that owns a strip club in Las Vegas. Yeah, bro. <laughs> hey, we're going from God <laughs> to the strip joint. <laughs> Sometimes they intertwine, you know. But, uh, yeah, man, we go get to talk with Charles Wright, the Godfather. And hopefully he doesn't bring the hoe train with him. But he, you mean hopefully he doesn't? I don't know what well, you're talking about. Oh, maybe. I mean, listen, the one thing that you, God – You hey, and look, I have different listen, bro, hopes for next listen, weekend, hey, the next there's week. There's everybody <laughs> – there's different ways to make everything okay <laughs> because you got to look at it this way, right? Even if you don't believe in God, you know he's got talent because he makes some beautiful ladies sometimes. So, <laughs> so you got to look at it. If you look at it that way, it's all it's all holy. So, <laughs> oh, uh, we will uh, we will check in with him. Uh, we'll check in with him next week up in Madison, Wisconsin, as uh, we take the show on the road. Lots of uh, lots of great things to uh, to look forward to. Uh, and all, as always, too, uh, send us your emails on anything, roadwarriorpodcast at gmail.com. That's roadwarriorpodcast at gmail.com. Or hit us up on Facebook or on Twitter, the What A Rush Podcast Facebook page, or at What A Rush Pod on Twitter. You could also find me on Twitter, at Joe Roderick, and on Instagram, too, at Joe Roderick. We've been uh, posting a lot of stuff 
on Instagram as well. I need what I need to do because everybody asked me, Joe. One of the things that been this is something I need to start the show with too. People ask me because they know we do the show from your house. Yeah. What kind of memorabilia you have? What kind of stuff you have? And I say I'm like, you you wouldn't know walking into his house. And I wonder if a lot of this has to do with your wife. Uh, that you wouldn't know that this guy was a pro wrestler. Well, you know, I hate to say it, but my Legion of Doom belt and I think my AWA belt has been taken over by grandson Jacob. So uh, he, he even took him in for show and tell one day at school. <laughs> and I'll, you know, a lot of my stuff I've given to my kids. Um, I, they have collectibles. I've, mm-hmm. The stuff I've collected over the years I've given to my son Joe, yep. uh, like Wayne Gretzky hockey sticks and stuff like that. And James has got my Muhammad Ali boxing gloves and – you know, I've traded shoulder pads for uh, Wayne Gretzky stuff and Pete Rose bats and all that stuff. So, so, I, so Wayne Gretzky and Pete Rose have your shoulder pads? No. Oh, uh, okay. Wayne, Wayne, uh, Pete Rose's son, Collector. Pete, Pete Jr., I gave a pair of shoulder pads to, and he gave me a bat in return. And then, uh, you know, I gave a pair of spike shoulder pads to uh, Jim Kelly, the old Buffalo Bills quarterback, because he had a sports bar up in Buffalo. I gave him a pair of those there that were in his trophy case and uh, – and so, so I did a lot of trade-off with collectible guys mm-hmm. for things. Um, but, yeah, man, I don't, listen, I don't need to flaunt that. When you walk into my house, you're seeing a 270-pound guy with a mohawk, so you pretty much know it's me. So if your listeners really want a picture of that, you can film yourself walking in next time and say, hey, is this animal's house? Yeah, it is, you know. There he is cutting the grass in the summertime. So. <laughs> Actually, you can come in here and you do see some stuff, though. You know, I have that timber company in Africa. Mm-hmm. You can see all my Africa yep. jargon out here. I got the black and white hands shaking hands over mm-hmm. here and all these African sculptures. Every, every piece here came from Liberia that was hand-carved out of the trees there. So yeah, I got a lot of stuff that way. Uh, we do have, uh, just uh, before we go, because I know we, we ran really long with Ted and it was well worth it, so I'll go to uh, one email because I, I know – a lot of these I know the answers to, and I, but I know a lot of the listeners that don't get to see you every week like I do. They want to know. So Doug from Chicago emails in, and he says that, you know, the Road Warriors, you guys were well-known, among other things, for your size and physique. You guys were always jacked. He says, what kind of diet did you follow those days? What kind of diet do you follow now? And what, kind of, what is your routine, your lifting routine these days? Well, I think back then in those days when you're young and stupid, like 25, 29 years old, you're on a seafood diet. Everything you see, you eat, (laughs) pretty much. And that's what I did, man. We would eat, you know, it wouldn't be a regular 8-ounce steak. It would be the 16-ounce steak when I sat down and ate, you know, with your baked potatoes. You know, everything was evened up. You know, now, Hawk, people wouldn't believe. I tried to eat mostly clean. I did eat a lot of carbohydrates, I will admit that, but Hawk was a junk food, fried food aholic. Hawk would not only drink, he would eat like crap and look the way he did. I don't know how he did it. He probably had a metabolism that was going a hundred times faster than mine was. But Hawk looked great and Hawk ate like junk. And I you know, I ate good, but not, you know, listen, I didn't eat as much as guys like the Warlord. Warlord would order two dinners at a seating and eat both dinners, one chicken, one steak, so you get both types of protein. <laughs> that's a stupid philosophy. That's what he would do. Now, today, I don't lift heavy anymore because I've had 14 operations, of course. Uh, by, um, by no means a cripple. But I go into the gym now, and I do giant set or superset a lot of things in the gym. You know, I'll get in there, and 
it's it's funny, Joe. Some of the things like I don't do any heavy benches before, and I was like a six forty bencher in my best of my day. But now I'll go in there, and I can't even get on a bench press because it's hard Just for me to lay down. That was it. Yeah, I can't even lay down on the bench to do a bench. So I do a lot of hammer bench, which a lot of the guys that lift and girls that lift know what a hammer machine is. I do hammer bench, and I'll superset it with cable crossovers. Then I'll do a hammer incline or a an incline in the machine. You know, do a machine incline and superset that with cable crossovers or light dumbbells. You know, I don't, uh, but it's funny. I'll go to triceps, and I can almost do the same weight on triceps I did when I was 320 pounds. Hmm. Bench, it's really weird how that works. But then again, I didn't have all the operations on mm-hmm. triceps that I had on my shoulders or operated on four times, my elbows twice. Mm. You know, so, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. But, yeah, that's, that's what I do for my training. Well, keep the uh, questions coming in. Uh, the uh, Road Warrior Podcast at gmail.com is where you could send us those emails that we appreciate everybody out there listening. Well, I got a question to all the listeners. What do you want to know? Ask Animal. And that's a big question mark. There is nothing that's off the table. You could ask Animal or my co host, Joe Roderick, here, and uh, we will do our damnedest to find the answer for you. Yep, uh, we uh, we have Charles Wright coming up next week. I think that we have a lot of really great shows for you. We have planned out around the next, uh, I, got a I would say, eight oh. weeks or so that we have planned out that we're really looking forward to not only revealing what those are, but also uh, having the interviews that we have planned. Well, I got a question for Charles next week. Yeah? I want him to name all the names of the women on the whole train. That's that's impossible. <laughs> and we're trying to it keep goes this. on. Listen, it makes Amtrak yeah. look like nothing. I mean, our podcast last week was three hours. If you have him name all of that, we're looking at like a five, six-hour show. Yeah, well, but, you know, the fans will be damn tuned in. They'll be, they'll be Googling every name you mentioned. Right, I was going to say, that, that might be uh, worth it. So, uh, until uh, next week when we have the Godfather on the uh, show, well, this uh, this was a fun ride with Ted DiBiase. Uh, I am Joe Roderick, and he is the star of the show. He is the WWE Hall of Famer, Joe Laurinaitis, Road Warrior Animal, an animal. Joe, it's been a great hour and great talking with the Million Dollar Man. The show today has been a rush.